0: If you're not familiar, that's the one that talks about shepherds and sheep and the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I personally didn't know much about sheep until I I started to study for this sermon. I do like their cheese. Uh, But as I studied the passage and I learned about them and, and about shepherding, it reminded me of my experiences as a Boy Scout. So my first hiking trip, I was about 12 years old. We went to a place called Blood Mountain and Slaughter Gap which sounds kind of like the valley of the shadow of death. (laughs) And this trip became known as the Najib Hermes Memorial Death March. (laughs) Now, we were supposed to have fantastic weather. It was like early spring, late winter. Uh, But when we got up to the North Georgia mountains, um, a huge snowstorm had blown in, and so what was supposed to be a leisurely three-mile hike became a longer 10-mile trek because we had to reroute. And contrary to the Boy Scout motto, I was not prepared. (laughs) Everything was covered in snow, and I mean like 8 to 12 inches of snow. And Back in 1992, I was a good bit, bit shorter, so it was coming up pretty high on me. I was wearing sneakers instead of hiking boots. My pack didn't fit, it was heavy and out of balance. My sleeping bag was the kind you might take to a sleepover. I packed way too much food including a jar of peanut butter, some jelly, a loaf of bread, a 12-pack of yoo and Capri Suns. It didn't take long, by the way, if you, if you don't do much hiking or camping, those aren't things you're supposed to take. Uh, it didn't take long before I was way behind the rest of the troop. My shoes and clothes were soaked through, my feet were blistered, I kept tripping, I twisted an ankle. Uh, it was bad. To this day, I am used as a cautionary tale, and they sing songs of my misadventures around the fire. I'm not kidding. But my scoutmaster, a man named Eddie Miller, who's a personal hero to me, <clears throat> stayed with me every step of the way. He helped me adjust and balance my pack. He helped me up when I fell, he helped me stay warm. He drank my Yoo-Hoo's. Most significantly, he encouraged me, and he was patient. When we got to camp, he helped me cook my dinner, he helped me dry out my shoes and my clothes, set up my tent. That day I learned to trust my leader. We ended up having a great time around the campfire and I was eventually able to relax. Speaking of relaxing, I recently heard a story about the author Dallas Willard. He was asked by someone to give one word to describe Jesus and without thinking he said, relaxed. And I really like that, I kind of wish I'd thought of it myself. But I kept thinking about Jesus being relaxed as I studied this psalm. And the more I reflected on the message of the passage, the more I could hear the relaxed confidence of David. So Psalm 23 is actually like one of the most famous pieces of literature, period. Not just in scripture, but in all of literature. Uh, it brings comfort to many, but it's, it's also really familiar. And so sometimes we can miss things because of that familiarity. So I hope today we can see from a fresh perspective what this psalm has to offer us. And and I have three points for you. First one is the good shepherd lets us relax. Number two, the good shepherd guides us through suffering and fear. And number three, the good shepherd gives us hope and a future. So let's begin with some context. What was going on with David when he wrote this? So he was a shepherd as a boy, so he knew about sheep, unlike me. But he probably wrote this psalm later in life when things were bad. And it could have been while he was fleeing from Saul, but I actually think that it was during his son Absalom's rebellion. This involved civil war, his children killing each other, lots of tragic drama. The story ends with the king a broken man, his daughter traumatized, and two of his sons dead. You can read all about it in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 13 through 18 if you're curious, but the point is he wasn't enjoying a peaceful day in the hill country watching the royal sheep. He was at a low point. So how does he write these things? How does he sound so relaxed? I'm going to reread the passage. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, So first point, the good shepherd lets us relax. Now, in the first few verses, David very poetically reminds himself of the facts. The Lord is his shepherd, so he has everything he needs. The psalm begins with two words in English, the Lord, but in in the Hebrew, it's actually one word, Yahweh, and that's the sacred and personal name of God. He's saying Yahweh is my shepherd. This marks a shift of intimacy in the psalms, by the way. Prior to this psalm, he'd say more general things like, my rock or my king or my deliverer. This is a more personal tone. It's kind of like going from calling someone Mr. or Mrs. to their first name or even a nickname. So a shepherd, what's a shepherd do? He cares for sheep and he guides them. And this was a respectable but kind of a low-level job. And a good shepherd lived with his flock all day and all night. And he had a bond with each sheep. A shepherd is their guide, their doctor, and their protector. A good shepherd maintains eye contact. I thought this was fascinating. He maintains eye contact with each one of his sheep. If the sheep can't see, if they don't maintain that eye contact, the sheep get lost. Like they're, That's the only thing that gives them any sort of sense of place. So shepherding requires full and constant attention. So the first line could actually read, The infinitely powerful, great I am is my intimate and nurturing keeper. I mean, is it just me, or is that kind of a contrast? So in this metaphor, David is comparing himself to a sheep. And that's not the most flattering comparison, but I'm not sure that his intention is self-deprecation. I mean, he's not saying that we're dumb or stubborn or helpless. I mean, I am, but... (laughs) But, but it actually does set up an important relational dynamic, and, and it places us in a position of need and humility. God isn't our co-pilot. He is our friend, but he's more than that. And he's not just some impersonal force. He's our intimate and close shepherd. Sheep don't relate to their shepherd like employees to a boss. This is important. How we view God and our relationship to him matters. I love the line in there, he makes me lie down. Getting sheep to lie down, to relax, is hard work. See, sheep, much like humans, can't relax unless certain requirements are met. They need to be fed and have plenty of clean water. They need uh, to be free of annoyances like fleas and parasites. Not to mention their, their wool must be maintained and sheared, otherwise it, become, it can become heavy and matted. I personally don't know much about the annoyances of, of long hair, but I hear it's a thing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, annoyances, like, I, I ask my wife about this if you get a chance. Like, if I'm missing, like, a piece of paper, I will go nuts. I'll spend all evening trying to find that one, you know, invoice or bill or whatever it is that I can't find. Or if I hear a drip, I've been up all night because I've heard a drip. So just those little annoyances just keep me from relaxing. And so sheep are similar in that regard. So if a sheep can relax, if, if they can be made to lie down, it means they're secure and well cared for. Now, sheep are difficult animals. Uh, they do stink. They bite. They won't last long without a shepherd. So, for example, they will destroy their own habitat. They'll keep eating the grass until it dies out, and then they'll just stay there and eventually starve and die. So they need a shepherd to guide them to another field. They need the shepherd to steer them away from self-destruction and towards thriving in hope. Uh, This reminds me of toddlers and some (laughs) grown-ups. Most grown-ups. Verse 3 shows the shepherd's care goes beyond material needs. David says he restores my soul. And, And this means more than like restoring a piece of furniture or a car. This literally means he brings my soul back to life. When David says he leads me in paths of righteousness, he understands he is spiritually helpless. But he knows the one who fulfills that need is close and cares deeply. So David can relax. So how do we apply this to our lives? Well, for starters, as I mentioned earlier, where we place our identity matters. When you're getting to know someone, What is it you want them to know about you? Is it your work or your preferred sports teams? Not the Georgia Bulldogs today. Uh, Where you studied, you know, you want them to know how educated you are, maybe the clubs that you're part of. Or do you want them to know that you belong to the Good Shepherd? That shows where you're putting your identity. So to practice joy, to relax, find your identity in the Lord. Let him define you. Second, David sounds grateful as he boasts to himself and others about his shepherd. David has gone through some really tough times, but he still says, here are the good, thing God, here are the good things that God does for me. Practicing gratitude flows into and out of experiencing joy. So thank God for, your, for all the good things you have. And, and you can start small and watch it snowball from there. David wraps up the first section by telling us and reminding himself why the shepherd is good. For his name's sake, and that's another way of saying for his glory, for God's glory. The sheep are the shepherd's glory. The well-being and the thriving of the sheep testify to the skill and the goodness of the shepherd, and he finds joy in seeing them thrive. And the sheep find their purpose, their joy, in bringing him, in bringing glory to the shepherd. So to practice joy, to find peace, to relax, seek God's glory over your own. So the shepherd makes it possible for the sheep to relax. But but what if you're going through hard? What, what if you're going through a hard season? What if times are rough? I mean, a drip is one thing. A missing invoice is one thing. But it's harder to relax when you've got real problems, when when you're really going through hardship. So this brings me to our second point. The good shepherd guides us through suffering and fear. So look at verse 4 if you've you've got your Bible open. This is sort of the pivot point of the psalm. And, And notice David moves from talking about God to talking to God. So he's praying. We meet David in one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This could also be translated as the valley of deep darkness. Broadly, he's talking about this present evil age, this broken world that we live in. But on a personal level, David is describing the heart season he's in. He's saying to God, this is where I am right now. I'm scared and I'm depressed. So why would the good shepherd lead his sheep into the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, what are they doing there in the first place? Well, he could actually be on a rescue mission going after a lost sheep. Another reason would be to get the sheep to a better place with with lush grass and clean water. And perhaps the sheep learn to trust their shepherd as he leads them through the valley. David goes on to say, I will fear no evil. And you read that, and there's a lot of bravado in that, and you think, well, is that even possible? Now, remember, we're interpreting poetry here, so we don't take everything literally. Otherwise, we'd have to assume that the king of Israel is a sheep uh, who's capable of composing poetry. Uh, But what David is doing is he's naming, he's just named his fear, but he's also letting himself, and he's letting himself feel it. He's not afraid of his feelings, he's not afraid of his emotions, but in this statement, he's resisting its control. David's wrestling with fear. He actively pushes back, calls out its lies, and he remembers the truth. So regardless of of what he's feeling, David knows the shepherd is with him, and he grabs hold of that. He finds comfort. He says, I find comfort in your rod and your staff. Now, the rod was a short club that could be used as a weapon against predators. It could also be used to discipline the sheep with gentle taps to get them back on track, or not-so-gentle taps to, to break up fights. The shepherd would also use his rod as sort of a medical device. He would use it to part the wool of the sheep to examine their skin and see if there are any parasites or disease. It's kind of like the Lord looking past our good works to examine our hearts. The staff was longer and it had a big hook on the end. And it was used to count and direct the sheep. It was also used to rescue them. More than anything, the staff represented the authority and the presence of the shepherd. So what? How do we apply this? Again, well, first we need to acknowledge our valleys of deep darkness. And the darkness could stem from a lot of different things. It could be death of a loved one, death of a dream. Life's just not going the way you thought it would. Broken relationships, loneliness. It might be sin you feel stuck in. And sometimes we just don't know why. But naming and processing the hard parts of life is part of what we mean when we talk about confession and testimony. Now, confession means that you admit your sins and you name the hard things. Testimony means you tell how God is working in your story. You talk about it with others. You talk about it with God. And keep in mind, David doesn't make the valley his identity. He makes his relationship to God his identity. He doesn't decide he's just going to live there, but he does tell us he's in the valley. He's not faking a smile. He's not pretending life is perfect. You know, a lot of times, we deal with suffering by trying to avoid it, or at least I do. And that that doesn't work really well. It's the emotional equivalent of riding around 285 all day long to avoid the connector. The thing is, you're still stuck in traffic and you're not really going anywhere. Getting to the green pastures, getting past the hard stuff requires that we go through it. So, what are some ways that we can avoid suffering? I mean, sometimes we can turn to good things. We feel that twinge of fear or sadness and and we stuff it down and, and turn our attention to work or to family or to a good cause. We stay busy so we never have to be quiet. I mean, It's crazy how, how we can be constantly engaged with our phones and with television and, and whatever else is going on, social media, but you aren't going to learn the voice of the shepherd over all that noise. We can also transfer our pain onto others, and, and that might sound something like, well, I'm, I'm fine, but I'm really worried about so-and-so. Bless their hearts. Or we can spiritualize it away. Well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm fine. I'm okay. You know, God is sovereign over all things, so whatever happens, I'm just going to keep smiling. And maybe on some level you're afraid that if, if I let on that I'm hurting, it'll make me look bad or it'll make God look bad and he might get mad at me. We can also avoid the valley with bad things, like overdoing alcohol or gossip or lust or anger. We like to justify sin because we believe it will take away our suffering. I just need this to take the edge off. I just need to have a good time. Here's the thing, it won't. Sin never works. Thor, uh, from the Marvel movies, is actually a great example of avoidance. He suffers great loss. If you, if you look at his arc as a character, he, he suffers great loss. I mean, his home country, his home planet, I guess, is destroyed. He loses all of his family, and at first he avoids suffering by becoming obsessed with his work of trying to do nothing less than save the universe. He gets mad because mad kind of gives you a sense of power, and it feels like you you feel more in control when you're angry, when you're mad, than if you experience sadness. At one point, Rocket, uh, the talking raccoon, asks about his mental state. And Paul responds, rage, vengeance, anger, loss, are tremendous motivators to clear the mind. So I'm good to go. Now he eventually does get his vengeance, but that doesn't take away his pain. So he stuffs it in a different way. <clears throat> he spends his days playing video games and arguing on social media, avoiding responsibility. The Mightiest Avenger is reduced to a numb caricature of depression because he wants to avoid suffering, because he won't mourn what he's lost. I mean, how many of you live your lives in, a, in that constant state of stuffing hard emotions? Here's the thing, do you even feel safe admitting hard things, admitting that you're suffering? Would you know where to start? I recently read that 15% of men have no close friends. That's up from 3% in 1990. And if you're single, that number jumps to 20%. So where do those people, where do those 15 to 20%, where do they share their suffering, their hard feelings? I mean, that's a problem. Remember, sheep hang out in flocks. They need healthy community to relax. So I'd encourage you, find people you can share honestly with. Pray for it. Step out in faith and build relationships. I mean, you guys have some fantastic things happening this season. It would be great opportunities to connect with other people, to start building those relationships. Seek out wise counsel from other believers or, or engage with a professional counselor. The point is, don't avoid the valleys. Now, I kind of wonder... These are conversations I've had with people at our church about why they're having a hard time connecting. And one of the things they always say, well, it's awkward. Fear. Uh, fear can make us, and I, I just think awkward is sort of like a, a polite way of saying I'm afraid of what people are going to think about me or, or how they might judge me. So fear can make us reluctant to engage with others and with hard things. We fear failure, so we won't even try things. We fear that we're going to get rejected, so we just won't even move towards people. Maybe you're afraid that you're married for your marriage, or or you're afraid you'll never have one. If you have children, you have fears about their well-being and how they'll turn out. Here's the thing, fear can be crippling if it gets control. So you have to actively push back against it. You have to remember the truth. We have a good shepherd whose presence crowds out fear. Here's My wife, she's really good at like English, so she, she shared this with me, commas and how they change sentences. Even though I walk through the valley isn't even the main point of the verse. It, it doesn't stand alone as its own sentence. It could be completely gone, and the sentence would still have value. It's modifying the main point. I will fear no evil because you are with me. The Lord's presence, his word, and his spirit are what give David courage and hope. So it brings us to our third point. The good shepherd gives us hope and a future. Excuse me. The last two verses point to David's hope. Walking through the valley, David has faith and hope in his final destination. In verse 5, we get this image of a victory banquet. And David says enemies will be at his table. What's that about? Well, this table points to forgiveness and redemption. And it foreshadows the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples. You remember that Judas was at that table. It looks forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb described in Revelation. It points to Jesus. David says... You anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. And and this refers to the God's generous hospitality and the anointing of the king. David realizes that at this point in his life, despite all of his sin, which is significant, and all the suffering that he's going through, the Lord is still gracious. David still reigns as God's anointed king, and the Lord provides abundantly, even though David doesn't deserve it. I mean, do you see the grace in that? In verse 6, David sounds relaxed and confident in his future. Some translations say, surely goodness and mercy. Uh, But it makes more sense to me to translate it as only goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Exclusively, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. In this instance, mercy means hesed or steadfast love. Uh, And that means, a translation of that would be, or a more more accurate translation of the verse as a whole might be, only goodness and never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love shall pursue me all the days of my life. I borrowed some of that from the Jesus Storybook Bible. But he ends with hope for his future and his life and greater hope in his eternity. The Lord's pursuit and presence And love, now and in eternity, are real to David. So I would encourage you all to grab hold of those promises. Remember, we were God's enemies until he reconciled us to himself through Christ. Ponder the ways he's been gracious to you and given you more than you deserve. And then tell each other. This psalm and, and many others serve as a reminder, as a means for healing, for giving us security, for helping us to practice joy. They show us what hope and faith look like. Hope and faith are so important when it comes to practicing joy. Have you guys heard of, of, she was really big this summer, I saw her all over social media, uh, Nightbird from America's Got Talent? Y'all familiar? No? So she was a contestant and she got up And she sang this beautiful song called, It's Okay, and it was about trying to avoid pain and being lost and then admitting pain and finding hope and joy. It was fantastic, and it blew the judges away to the point where she made Simon Cowell cry, and he's the grouchy one who tells everyone how terrible they are. Um, She made him cry. After the song, she shared about how her husband had left her. She had cancer for the third time with like a 2% chance of survival. But there was something about her performance, there was just this energy and and this hope in it. It just didn't make any sense. Afterwards, she said, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. In another interview, she said, you can lie to yourself and say that you're fine. You can go down those dark roads and stay there because it's so tragic. Or you can go down those dark roads and come back. But the third one, is hardest, but it's never without reward." And I'm, I'm listening to this person, I'm thinking, how can she have such hope? Well, it turns out she's actually a believer, she knows Jesus. And in a blog post she wrote, I'm still reeling, this is after she found out she'd been diagnosed with cancer for the third time, I'm still reeling, drenched in sorrow. I'm still begging, bargaining, demanding, disappearing. And I guess that means I have all the more reason to say thank you, because God is drawing near to me again, 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 no matter how many times he is sent away. See, Nightbird knows the Good Shepherd, and she has hope in her suffering because she's experienced the closeness of God Suffering strips away the things we think will give us relief. It exposes the things that we want, and it shows us what really matters. More accurately, who really matters. Earlier, I mentioned Dallas Willard describing Jesus as relaxed. He said that because he said, Jesus trusted and was fully submitted to his Father. So even though he carried the biggest responsibility ever, that is to bring redemption to all mankind, he lived out what he preached, and he trusted the plan of his Father. He suffered, he experienced anxiety, but he always knew he would end up victorious, so he could relax and live out his calling. In John 10, verses 11 through 15, Jesus references this psalm when explaining his calling. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life down for for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. He came as a baby, born in a manger among sheep, so he could be among us. Shepherds, at the prompting of an angel, were the first to come and see him and tell others about him. He became the lamb that was slain so his flock would be spared. Jesus is the good shepherd. That means that everything we have and everything we need is from him. And when you want him more than anything else and you choose him over everything, that's when you experience freedom from fear and sin. That's when you realize that you have everything you need and nothing can take that away that's when you can relax. We can go through the valleys and we can encounter wolves. Hired hands will abandon us, but the good shepherd will always be there. If you know him, he knows you intimately. And he will pursue you no matter how dark the valley, no matter how vicious the wolves See, Jesus took out the wolves that can really hurt us once and for all. He defeated sin and death with his life and his death and his resurrection. And if you believe that, if you believe in what he did and in who he is, you can trust him as your shepherd and rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for your body. Thank you for the good shepherd who pursues us. May that truth grow, grow in us. May we, we, we believe that more and more. And may we see Jesus. May we learn to hear his voice and find comfort in it and in his presence in our lives. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen.